Hi, this is Michael Shapiro, and welcome back to the Delacorte Review Podcast, where in each episode we talk with a writer about how his or her story came to be, meaning all that went wrong and ultimately right in bringing to life a story that needed to be told. As in season one, each of these writers has a story that appears in this issue of the review, five stories built around a single theme. In this issue, that theme is silence. When Lauren Harris flew back to Sioux Center, Iowa, she was reminded of what it was like to grow up in, as she describes it, the only place in the world. Sioux Center is a wonderful place, friendly, prosperous, safe. It is also represented by Steve King, who has infuriated even his fellow Republicans with the sometimes, there's no other word for it, awful things he has said about immigrants. Sioux Center votes for Steve King again and again, and that does not make it any less a wonderful place for those who live there, almost everyone who lives there. It is wonderful, that is, as long as you don't step out of line. It doesn't take much to do that. So I'm from Sioux Center, Iowa, um, which is way up in the northwest corner. So it's pretty close to Nebraska. It's pretty close to Minnesota. It's pretty close to South Dakota. It's pretty far from the rest of Iowa. Um, and What's it like there? Um, there's a lot of corn. Um, I, I, I can kind of describe it to you like, you know, when I just described to when people say, like, where are you from and what do you, what do you, do? you know, what was it like? Um, it's very rural and agricultural. Um, it's a lot of um, sporting events, like high school sporting events and then otherwise just, like, finding ways to entertain yourself. Um, but it was, a, I mean, it was a really nice place to grow up. Um, I walked, biked all over the town and my parents never asked where I was going or, you know, when I would be back. They just assumed this is, you know, kind of a safe, nice place to live and you're going to come home for dinner in one piece and, um, you know, go do whatever until then. So the implication is that nothing bad happens there? Yeah, I think it felt felt like that. But then what sets this return to Iowa in motion is that something bad kind of did happen. Yeah. What happened? So um, I, I guess the the big picture thing that made me start thinking about going home um, was that the midterm elections, um, in the midterm elections, Sioux County reelected Steve King. Um, and sort of throughout that election process, he was using a lot of um, rhetoric, you know, he, the way that he talks about immigration um, in particular. Um, is We should explain a bit, who's, for those who don't know, who Steve King is. Sure. So um, he's a, um, a representative um, for District 4. Um, he was, you know, my representative like most of my life growing up, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. It's been a while since I looked at my story about how many terms he's served. But, like, he's been there a long time. Um, and he's gotten a lot of support um, from his constituency, from Sioux County in particular. They've always been very supportive of him. He's a Republican. Um, and, um, yeah, but but most recently, so he actually made it to the national news quite a bit this fall, winter, um, because of some of the comments that he made. In particular, he made a comment um, to a reporter at the New York Times, something along the lines of, um, you know, when did um, when did 
praising Western civilization and praising, um, you know, nationalism become bad. Um, and after that, um, he actually got taken off of his committees on which he served. Well, he said a lot of bad. He has said oh, a lot of yeah. terrible things over the years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's right? it's sort of built up into like this mountain, and that you know that was the straw that broke the camel's back, or, mm-hmm. or you know whatever phrase you want to use. Um, yeah. So uh, there was a, an interview a few years ago where he said something like. You know, immigrants with calves the size of cantaloupes are smuggling drugs across the border left and right. And um, he um, said within the past, I guess now it's the spring, so like within the past year and a half, um, he tweeted something like, how are we going to rebuild society with someone else's babies? Sort of getting at this idea of like other people coming in, not American people and um, how, you know, just this idea of like what a great society is made up of, what the people look like in that society and and what what who are insiders and who are outsiders, I guess. So until this until this this fall, winter, he had he basically was coasting to reelection every year. Mm-hmm. So did that happen again this year? It did. Yeah. But something else happened, too. Right. Yes. Um so this year he had a Democratic challenger um, that actually did very well, like came the closest to beating King that anyone has in recent memory. Um, and that actually drew in a lot of people in the community that I grew up, in which I grew up, um, in a lot of interesting ways, like because... I think nationally, in general, um, you're seeing some of these communities, Republican strongholds, coming up against certain ideas where there are like tiny parts of the community that say, whoa, you know, like we're, we're okay with this. And then a couple steps further, we're okay with that. But then there's like something happens and suddenly not everyone's okay with it anymore. And um, that that happened in my hometown and it was actually very interesting being in journalism school and being from this town um, and seeing kind of some of these national stories run and comparing them to like Facebook posts that I was seeing or social media posts and thinking like what's actually going on on the ground here versus sort of the national conversations that's happening about this place. So just going back to what you were saying initially about the town itself. Yeah. The impression of reading your story overwhelmingly and talking about it with you is that this is a place where people are nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And there's a real premium on being nice. Mm-hmm. Is that, can that be sometimes claustrophobic yeah I mean I I still I still really feel that a lot feel the importance of being nice um I'm from I'm from Brooklyn and I never feel that way (laughs) ever my whole life well it's interesting um being in this program and being a journalist where I think sometimes it's necessary to be pushy or to be aggressive um, and having to sort of flex that muscle, which I've never or haven't flexed a lot in my life. Um, 
And I think that I've had to really, like, mentally wrestle with what is nice and what is kind and what is good and, like, the difference between those things. Um, Because nice is not always true. Ah. So the story that you tell is about one woman, a couple, but especially about her. And she stepped a little bit out of line. Yeah, certainly by the standards of of some people in the community. What'd she do? So I think that... Well, by the way, we should explain, we're being very careful about not using her name, and that's actually part of the story. Yes. So tell us about what she did, and then we can talk about her name and not using her name. Sure. Um, So she wrote a letter to the editor. I think that's the first step that she took that sort of expressed concern for a lot of the language that um, Representative King had been using and and sort of saying, you know, um, I'm I've been a Republican for a considerable part of my life. You know, I'm from here. This is my home. Um, He's represented me for a long time. Um, Not our whole life. We can get to that. But, um, you know, just this idea of sort of speaking and reaching out to other people in the community and saying, hey, this is how I feel. I'm not going to vote for him. You don't have to either. <laughs> and this is a letter to the editor of? Of just the Sioux Center News, like the local newspaper. What you're describing for many people in this country and many of the writers who are listening to this podcast is not exactly extreme behavior. A letter to the editor saying, I'm concerned about the some of the things that our representative says which many people are cons- you know, upset about and concerned about, and he's been condemned for, and I'm not going to vote for him again. But what happens when you do that in Sioux Center, Iowa? Well, it's interesting because I don't think the backlash, if that's the right word for it, started after that action. I think it happened after um, her story kind of started to grow um, when other reporters like me approached her and asked to tell her story. So what happened? You, and because, and we're going to come to the backlash in a moment, but as the story builds, so she writes this letter to the editor. And what happens after that? So um, after that, a number of journalists reached out to her and um, asked if they could interview her um, and in addition to um, J.D. Scholten, who, sorry, J.D. Scholten. Scholten is the Dutch version of his name, which it's a Dutch community and people always say it wrong. Anyway, so J.D. Scholten's campaign actually... Who is J.D.? Uh, sorry, it's Steve King's Democratic opponent. Okay. His campaign actually reached out to her as well and um, got to know her a little bit and then used her in a campaign video. So let me just pause for a second. So the fact that a, a, a woman in Sioux Center writes a letter to the editor of the local paper, not in a vitriolic way, but questioning and saying, concluding that she cannot vote for this man anymore, that's news? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying yeah. I, at all. But that, in your view, and obviously in the reviews of a lot of reporters there, that is news. Yeah. Why, why you explain to us the context of Sioux Center that would explain how that is news. Is that because nobody ever says anything mean? 
Um, I think a little bit. Actually, in the process of reporting this story, and I don't know if this will make it into the final draft or not. But well, we'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I heard a story from a historian that I met with to kind of learn about, like, the roots of the community. And, and he said um, that one of the, you know, longtime mayors of the community, there was this horrible grasshopper blight where, like, grasshoppers ate all of the crops, um, I think, in the, like, early 1900s. Um, and they, there was this Dutch immigrant in the community who wrote a letter home that said, you know, there's this horrible grasshopper blight. All of the crops are dying. Don't don't come here. Don't move here. Um, and the story goes that the mayor was so upset that that he like ran the guy out of town because <laughs> uh, he said, you know, he said bad things about the community. But what he said, what this apocryphal and not Dutch farmer said to his friends back in the Netherlands was true. Right. And what this woman who writes a letter to the editor is a objectively speaking, Steve King has said these things. Sure. And what she's saying is as a result of that, she's offering an opinion. And Yeah, it was an, edit, it was an op-ed. Yeah. So... Have people, in with, with apologies to the people you grew up with, have they never heard of the ritual of Twitter? I mean, why? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah. People have. I, 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 so, Steve King, a lot of the stuff that he said has been on Twitter, so I'm sure that People are aware of Twitter because they wouldn't have heard these things that King said if they weren't plugged in some way. So going back, so she writes she writes this letter and it is news. And people come to her, people like you, journalists like you. And what do you want to know? What are you asking her? If I'm the reporter coming yeah. to talk to her. You and know. eventually you are the reporter coming uh, yeah, to talk to her. Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. So I think... Um, I guess people want to know why she's willing to speak out. And it becomes this political story, right? Because the vote hasn't happened yet at this point. Mm-hmm. So people are trying to figure out, like, what's the pulse in the community? Like, who are people voting for? Is the tide turned? Is Steve King done? Um, and this narrative kind of emerges around her, like, lifelong Republican is not voting for Steve King. Um lifelong Republican speaking out against Steve King. And that kind of becomes the story that attaches itself to her. Um, And in both state and national media, the story kind of became, you know, she was one of a couple people that were interviewed that they say, you know, these are um, Christian voters um, who have, have been longtime supporters who are no longer supporting Steve King. So you mentioned the backlash. Yeah. What happens? So um, the backlash is that there were, I guess there's a a Facebook group in particular um, of local political activists, I guess I would say, who are sort of critical of of things that happen in the community that they feel are inconsistent with the community's values, particularly, um, you know, faith-based values. So it's a predominantly um, Christian community, predominantly Protestant Christian. Um, I mean, there's like a, a church on every corner. If, you know, every time I go back home, there's like a million church churchy jokes. 
And and we should explain that you grew up in this. I mean, it's not as if you were the, the town heretic here. Oh right? no, absolutely not. Right? No, I I I went back to the church that I grew up in when I was home reporting this story, and you know I, I was walking around the church, and people were uh, people that I that watched me grow up were coming up to me, and s- people mailed me things afterwards because they knew I was writing a story and they oh I you know I came across this article and I thought I would mail it to you because it might be helpful in reporting your master's thesis um so so <laughs> you so what happens going back to the backlash is yeah. that there's this Facebook group there's this Facebook a group faith-based sort of yeah Facebook group and what do they do they posted a bunch of long I guess uh, they made a bunch of long Facebook posts about this woman. And I mean, essentially, they they said that she lied. Lied? Lied. Yeah. How did she lie? So they they looked at the campaign video for the Democratic campaign who was uh, going against King in the midterms. They looked at the um, story in the state newspaper at the Capitol, and they looked at the a story that was written on the national level, and they said, all three of these stories portray this woman as a lifelong Republican. She is not. That's a lie. She's a liar. They're liars. People in other parts of the country get called liars all the time, hmm. and and it's sort of a so what. But it's different there, isn't it? Well, it's small. It, it, so many people know one another. I, I know so many people. I, I, was, I went and talked with my ethics professor while I was writing this story because, you know, we talk about, like, being insider versus being outsider. And as I was reporting this story, I was put in touch with so many people. I tried to really approach it from the outside, you know, so not just talk to people that I knew growing mm-hmm. up, but find people that I didn't have a relationship with so that I could kind of think about the context that I was familiar with while meeting with someone who I, I didn't have, you know, a leaning toward. But I kept getting referred to either people that I knew or people that knew my parents or people that said, oh, I remember, you know, you used to go for violin lessons next door. <laughs> and and that was sort of strange. And that, I think, gets at, like, the, the intimacy and the smallness of this community. Um, it, it just sort of everyone knows everyone. And I think there's a level of anonymity in a big city where if someone calls you a liar, who cares? People don't even know who you are. So we should explain why... In the end of the, at the end of the day, we actually did something with this story that was a lot of people would look at journalistically and go, you know, I'm not sure this is so good. Yeah. Um, we decided not to use her name. Mm-hmm. Now, we should explain to people listening to the podcast and the writers who are listening to this podcast and the journalists that it's quite understandable in a story from a war zone where you don't put somebody's name in because – that come, th- their lives are at stake. And if their name appears, there could be a knock on the door in the middle of the night from the secret police and they're never seen again. Right. But we're talking about Sioux Center, Iowa, mm-hmm. where nothing really goes wrong. And yet, you felt, and we talked with Mike and, 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 and I talked with you a lot about this, that you felt very strongly, and obviously she felt very strongly, that if her name is used, even though people kind of knew it, things had died down, it was going to come at a real... 
It wasn't going to endanger her life, but it was certainly going to make it unhappy. Mm-hmm. What, what, what was she afraid of? And what did you feel that was quite justifiable in not using her name? So I think that gets again at the idea of like the borders on a story, which we talked about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Because like you said, w- when she wrote this editorial... No, excuse me, letter. Yeah, sorry. She just wrote a letter. You're right, you're right. She wrote a letter But isn't that interesting you should say she wrote this editorial as (laughs) if she did something really bad. Right. (laughs) So she writes this letter to the editor, um, you know, that like maybe had some ripples. But but really the tidal wave happened when when it went on the internet and when, when people kind of started to find her and make her story bigger and push the borders of her story... Um, both the reporters and the, you know, the Facebook group, because that like that like knocks down the walls and makes this story large. You described the sense of driving in from the Omaha airport in that two hours and, as you put it, the only place in the world. What was it like leaving? It was strange. Um, it was strange because I didn't know when I would be back. It was strange because I didn't know what I was going to write. It was strange because I knew that I'd be coming back here and trying to explain my feelings about a place that would feel very foreign to many people on the East Coast in a big city. Um It reminded me, or it made me realize some things about myself. Like what? It made me realize why I'm so constantly aware of other people's perceptions. Um, Something that I think can be a very good tool as a reporter, as a journalist, I've found that really helpful skill, but it can be a really crippling skill. Um, And actually, one of the people that I interviewed said something along those lines, you know, um, he said, um, it's a community where people are always looking to each other and caring for each other. But when that becomes looking at each other, and caring what other people think, that's, like, when it becomes a problem. Um, and I, like, I carry that sort of sense with me still. Um, it drives people in my life crazy because they're like, you don't just, that's not what you think. Just say what you, what you think. <laughs> Were you able to say what you thought in writing the story? Yes. How did that feel? I think I've always been able to say what I think more easily in writing than in the rest of my life. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Delacorte Review podcast. If you are a writer or have friends who, like all writers, is struggling to tell the story that he or she needs to tell, we invite you to share this podcast with them, along with those from season one. You can find this story and the others in issue number two at 
our Delacorte Review, that's one word, DelacorteReview.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at Delacorte Review. The Delacorte Review appears three times a year, winter, spring, and fall, and its home is the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. The podcast is produced by Katie Ferguson, and the theme music you hear is by Jim Okar. The editor of the Delacorte Review is Mike Hoyt. Our senior editor is Sissy Falligan, and associate editors are Natasha Rodriguez and Abigail Covington. Our illustrator is Eleanor Hamelin. We'll see you next time.